Let's get real. This is America WK with Andrew WK on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello there and welcome to a brand new episode of America WK. I am your host, Andrew WK. And as always, it is truly my privilege and my pleasure on every level to be here with you. I have a great deal of stuff I want to talk to you about today. As always, we're on this journey together. This show is a journey in itself, and how it develops and unfolds, I don't really know. Each episode I make up as we go along, in case you couldn't tell. But uh, I do have a variety of uh, listener questions I wanted to address, and then try to go into some uh, bigger topics of discussion, one that we haven't really focused on before, and see just how much we can get into today's episode. Again, the beauty of it is that whatever I can't fit into today, or what we don't have time for, is really never an issue, because there's always another episode only a week away, and I really love that. It makes me think about life in general and how much we try to cram in. There is an urgency to life. There is a sense that it is fleeting and passing us by, and that we're aware of the limited time we have. And that time is not just limited in terms of our lifetime, but it's limited in terms of the vitality and energy that we have in our best moments. Even within one day, we know that there's a peak level of focus, of energy, of enthusiasm, of drive and motivation that we have, and we want to seize the moment while we can. And as we go through life, the, whether we like to think of it this way or not, there is a sort of peak vitality. I don't know exactly what age that would be. It's probably the span of about 20 years and it could be uh, just physical energy. For many people, it seems as though their mental energy can actually increase or improve or at least refine itself as they get older, perhaps past their physical prime. Other people seem to hit their prime very, very early and then have a long, slow decline. But all of this creates a type of pressure and it's not wrong to keep that in mind. In fact, I would keep it very much in mind. And only as a motivating and humbling type of headspace. Not something that should discourage us or depress us. And certainly not something that should cause anxiety. As though we're running out of time and there's a fear of what's to come beyond that. Perhaps in many ways, all we can do is try to make the best use of our time in a very responsible and loving way, sort of uh, to give thanks for the time that we've been given. Because we all are well aware of how quickly things can be cut short. Without any rhyme or reason, we've seen it happen time and time and time again. And if there is one thing we can take away from Seeing someone, whether we are close to them or not, whose life ended very, very 
unexpectedly and much too soon. Let us take away a sense of appreciation for whatever time we have right now. Right at this second. And with all that in mind, let us also try to balance that in a very artful and challenging way with patience. With patience and with openness. The patience to allow ourselves the space and time and room to develop and live so that we don't have to squeeze our entire life into one day or one week or month or year. That we don't have to do everything, get everything, or be everything immediately. That, in fact, what we learn through the delayed achievement of our goals or the extended process of achieving them or going through life in general is perhaps much more valuable than doing it all at once. Not only because we are able to learn more as we go, but also because probably we wouldn't have the ability to even process it or experience it all if it happened too quickly. Sort of like uh, savoring a fine meal. If you ate all the food really, 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 really fast, like a speed eater. I mean, if you've ever watched a professional speed eater, someone who can eat an entire large pizza in 20 seconds, and I've seen similar feats like this, just go onto the computer. As always, the computer is now sort of like a library of Alexandria. Literally uh, every topic, every feat, every event, every imaginary or reality-based idea is on there, including someone eating a pizza very, very quickly. And you'll see that there's really not much time to enjoy eating pizza. And it's hard to imagine not enjoying eating pizza if you're like me and most people. Pizza is a great, pleasurable experience. And the way that slice, assuming it's a typical triangular-shaped slice, the way it starts with that first pointed bite and then widens out to that big finish with the crust, whether you eat the crust or not, that process of going through that slice, squeezing in certain toppings into one bite, maybe avoiding certain toppings in another bite for a bit of just pure cheese and sauce. And then if you do eat the crust, that very plain, almost palate cleansing, savory bread that ends the slice. If you eat that slice and many other slices in a matter of seconds, there's not much way that your brain can even process all of that, or all the sensations of those flavors and the feeling of it in your mouth and going down your gullet and throat are so rushed and you're so uh, focused on trying to be fast about it, trying to rush through it, trying to jam as much pizza into your body as possible that you don't have the chance to really think about anything else. So maybe that's the one thing that we can 
appreciate about patience, even when we don't want to wait, is that stretching things out maybe actually makes life feel longer. We don't really quite know how time works. Time is very puzzling. And it seems to have emerged as a human perception. It may not actually exist as a fixed law of the universe. Time might just be sort of an impression, a way that we have filtered what it feels like to be alive into sort of a a unit of measurement. And it may describe very accurately this otherwise indescribable sensation of being, of existing, but we don't really know how it works. And in that way, time might be very malleable, at least in terms of sensation. So maybe something about not trying to cram everything in, just like I may not be able to cram everything into this radio show episode today. I mean, boy, I wasn't planning actually on talking about any of this. And here we are almost at the end of our first segment. I probably won't get to everything I wanted to today, but that doesn't matter because things are going as they are meant to go. I am following the impulses that uh, present themselves as life happens, and it's happening right now to me. It's happening to you. It's happening to both of us together. We're in it together, both of us making up this this show. It's America WK. I'll be right back, and we'll get into some very interesting questions from listeners. Thank you for being with me. Stay tuned. I'm Andrew WK, and I'll be right back. America WK with Andrew WK, the undisputed king of partying. On the Blaze Radio Network! And I think that we need to have a discussion now. What does it really mean to be American? And what is America in the 21st century if it just means it's a place where you can show up and collect welfare and do some work and go home? You can be a citizen without actually having to put yourself on the line for the country in various ways, obey the laws, uh, pay taxes. And if we can't talk about that, it's all over. I mean, it's just a question of when. Buck Sexton, weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to America WK with Andrew WK. Welcome back to America WK. I'm Andrew WK. Thank you for staying with me here. We just were discussing time and trying to squeeze as much as we can into life this urgency of knowing our time is limited, but also wanting to enjoy life and savor our experiences and not rush through them. It's a balancing act. And you know, when it comes to balance, I'm not always so convinced that things being in balance, as we might typically think of being in balance, sort of this even keel, I don't know that that is necessarily the best way to live or to think about even the idea of a balanced life. I have often thought of it, just based on my own experience, as being more like a teeter-totter or a seesaw in that... You have an axis point in the center, 
you have the ability to balance, but that would require everything being exactly right. For example, finding two people, let's say randomly on the playground, that happen to weigh the exact same amount. Now, that's possible. And I remember playing on the seesaw, and at times that was sort of the game. It wasn't about going up and down. It was to see if we could balance, and we very rarely could. It usually required some adjusting, someone moving closer to the center of the seesaw or further away. Uh, and if we did achieve balance, it was fleeting. It only lasted for a few seconds where even the wind or someone's uh, swinging of their foot ever so slightly would throw things off balance again. So I think it's not about being out of balance where you just have one side of the seesaw permanently down and the other side permanently up. That's out of balance. I'd say it's about being off balance and getting your balance and then being off balance and getting a balancing act. That seems much more how life is to me. And the reason I enjoy that, we have made may have talked about this before, is because then you have to use your abilities. You're called on your inner resources to create that balance. If the balance was fixed, then it's really not balance at all. You might as well just weld the seesaw into place so it can't move. But that doesn't really require anyone to ride it. That doesn't really even require it being a seesaw. That doesn't really require there being any dynamics to life, any contrasts, any ups and downs or highs and lows. Seems just like the roller coaster we've talked about, that it's the going up and down and seeing the entire ride as a series of ups and downs that in... combination create a a sort of larger overall balance that seems to be the key to have some salty then to have something sweet but not to have neither just so that you avoid this contrast and you just keep things bland blandness and perfect balance that does not seem to be akin to human nature Some people may be able to achieve this. I don't know that I would want to. Personally, I enjoy the dynamics of life. I enjoy contrast. I enjoy speaking to you right now in a relatively calm and reasonable way. And then I enjoy going and screaming my head off, uh, running around performing a rock and roll concert. That's what makes life exciting is that there's so much to do, so many different ways to feel, so much diversity and contrast. And really, if we're strong enough, then we can allow ourselves to be out of balance, to be off kilter, and know that we can get back enough balance to never fall all the way over permanently and to never be frozen in sort of a permanent state of equilibrium that is just, might as well be called death. Just nothingness. We don't want that either, even though it's appealing in some ways to imagine the peace of oblivion. I don't know that we'd be present or aware enough in oblivion to even know that we were in oblivion to enjoy it. As far as we know, that complete state of nothingness includes nothingness of experience. We wouldn't even be able to know that we were in it. And for some people who are in extreme agony, 
that may be the I, uh, ideal type of state or ideal re- relief. No state at all. A relief that is so relieving that you don't even know that you're relieved. Moving on, we're going to go into some questions here. And these are actually, uh, I found the best way to do this from uh, a lot of great feedback. I mean, I cannot thank you enough. If you've ever written in to me in any capacity, actually, whether it's been about a specific topic we've discussed on the show or whether it's about something on your mind, uh, whether you're sharing something with me, uh, I've certainly been enlightened and informed in many different ways by all kinds of people that I've written in. So if you've ever done that, or even if you've thought about doing that, I like to think that I could pick up on that. I feel the experience we're having here together is mutual. And I certainly don't feel like I have any position of uh, authority or really that much experience in life in general to really speak beyond a state of uh, common discussion. So I'm not really teaching anyone anything. I'm not really trying to tell you something that I imagine you don't already know. Uh, For me, what this show is, in particular, is meant to reinforce and encourage. I don't want to really complain about things. I don't really have solutions necessarily for things that I would want to complain about. And I don't really claim to be saying much that's new or groundbreaking. I'm just trying to say what seems important and what I'm thinking about. And as always, I think what I'm thinking about is probably what other people are thinking about too. Sometimes, you know, you don't realize you're thinking about the same thing as someone else. So that's when it can be very helpful when it's pointed out and made evident and a part of yourself that you may have for whatever reason, not been in touch with, is revealed to you. It happens a lot where I notice a whole way of feeling that I kind of forgot about, like a way that life could feel that I somehow just lost track of. I don't know if it's a a, a part of growing older that certain feelings from childhood, when I say feelings, I really mean that in a very broad sense, a way that it felt to be who I was at a different time, just totally slipped away. Or maybe didn't slip away, maybe actually it is still there, and I just didn't realize I could still feel it. Maybe every way we ever felt, every different way it felt to be ourselves, is still present, and it just has to be brought out, for better or worse. It could be very traumatizing or painful or uncomfortable to remember certain versions of yourself. But at times, I have enjoyed talking with you on this show specifically because it has put me back in touch with some of the better parts of myself that have gotten lost along the way, for good reasons and not. So uh, we're going to get into these questions, and I'm going to sum up the spirit of these listener questions, because many of them were touching on the same topic. Uh, This is America WK. Thank you for staying with me as we make our way through this uncharted yet familiar territory. I'll be right back. 
This is America WK with Andrew WK. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. When the circumstances call for it, I'm going to, you know, reach a practical, small-c conservative answer, just like you would. Now, I correct me if I'm wrong, I think that is the essence of Trump's political argument to the degree he has one. But to the degree he has one, that's it. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. The undisputed king of partying invites you to a no-holds-barred celebration of being alive. This is America WK with Andrew WK. Welcome back to America WK. I'm Andrew WK. Thank you for being with me today. We've talked about time, trying to squeeze in as much life as you can while you have the chance to live it, and at the same time, struggling to stretch that life out and stretch those experiences out so that you can savor them and actually realize that they're happening. I mean, how often do we realize that we were actually living some of the best times of our life and didn't even realize it? And they weren't necessarily the most grand or explosive, uh, triumphant moments. They were these very particular, almost quiet, but uh, palpably clear, resonant moments of goodness in our life. It could be a time just hanging out with your family in your bedroom. It could be a time where someone just happened to say something, maybe not of any great importance, that just happened to be memorable for some reason. I think about things that people said years ago that were not offered with any sort of weighty significance. They weren't a grand declaration or even a moment, it wasn't even like someone pulled me aside to share some type of deep introspective discussion. It was just some offhand remark that for whatever reason became etched into my brain and I find myself thinking about all the time. I realized, wow, this is life. that was my life. I mean, when your life flashes before your eyes, if you've ever had an experience like that, it doesn't necessarily have to happen as it's uh, stereotypically displayed in a sort of of end-of-life crisis, your life can flash before your eyes at all types of moments. And when it does, it is often made up of all types of moments that you wouldn't even necessarily consider to be part of your life. It makes you realize that every moment counts. Every part of your life counts. Even the parts that you don't think count or the part of your life that is supposed to be on the way to something that counts. It all counts. And it's interesting how your life kind of tells you what counts, despite what you actually think is supposed to count. Again, like some offhand little remark, like some particular memory. (laughs) For example, I just thought of one right now. I don't know why this is a memory I even have. it was, I guess, sort of funny. I mean, maybe you'll think it's interesting, but it's almost quite drab and boring in its 
commonplace non-event status. It's just was barely even a thing. But for whatever reason, I remember when I was about, let's say 12, 11 years old, I went to the mall to buy some clothes for going back to school, which was sort of a tradition towards the end of summer. I was usually excited on one hand about going back to school and also, of course, a bit dreadful. It also depended on what grade I would have been entering and if it was uh, the beginning of a new uh, era of schooling, for example, moving from elementary school into junior high school or middle school, uh, etc., or moving to a different school period, uh, moving to a different area. There were some times when we moved and I had to meet new kids and things like that. But anyway, uh, going to get new clothing for school was exciting. That was a fun time because there was usually a sense that I had gained some deeper understanding of style. However wrong I was, I felt like maybe I knew a little bit more about how I wanted to clothe my body. And there was always this thrill of seeing the kids I hadn't seen over the summer back at school and kind of seeing how they would look now especially the people who weren't necessarily my close friends. The people I was close friends with I saw during the summer break. We would play and hang out and maybe even do sports together and stuff like that. I was in bands, and we played uh, music together. So it was more the kids that I didn't really know that well. I was always sort of intrigued. And, And there may have been girls' romantic interests, even at that very young age, where uh, I didn't really have the nerve to even think about them uh, romantically in terms of actually asking them out or anything like that. I mean, I have friends who claim they asked out girls and went on dates when they were 9, 10, 11 years old. That's fine. I suppose if you did, I I, I, I don't think my parents would have really let me, actually. I remember once <laughs> I told my brother in confidence that I had a crush on this sort of neighborhood friend of the family, this girl who was my age, I suppose. Maybe she was one year younger. And uh, my brother told my mom, and I was probably maybe 11 around the same time. My mom said, oh, well, that's not possible. Andrew's too young to have feelings like that. And I thought, oh, I am? Oh, okay, well, it was all kind of embarrassing, of course. Well, anyway, uh, going to get new clothing for school had a lot of excitement intertwined and a lot of these feelings new beginnings nervousness uh, senses of dread maybe you know I don't know if other people as commonly feel these feelings of dread as I have done I've tried to reinterpret them reframe them use different words to describe them but that feeling of dread that's that's still the best word I can find but I don't necessarily mean it as a negative thing it's almost like uh distorted excitement. It's not nervousness either. Or if it is nervousness, it's nervousness to such a degree that it becomes almost nauseous, nauseating. It's similar to me uh, to going on a very, very scary roller coaster for the first time, especially when you're younger, you haven't had a lot of experience with rides like that, going to a haunted house, um... The sense of anticipation, I think what makes it dread for me, 
uh, is that it's not just a free floating anxiety and it's not just nervousness in general. It's a sense of understanding, knowing that something is going to happen. That is inevitable. This thing, this event, this experience is going to occur in a relatively short amount of time from now. And there's really not much I can do except try to prepare for it. And that feeling of trying to prepare, I suppose, is a positive way of looking at dread. I mean, I get that uh, as a as a performer, even before doing uh, this radio show. But I've learned to enjoy it now. I don't think of it as a bad feeling. Uh, I mean, talk about feeling alive. You know you're alive then. Uh, it's like every part of yourself is engaged in this type of uh, impending intensity. So anyway, that was the feeling I had going into the school year at the end of every summer. Uh, and I would, I guess, deal with that feeling by uh, preparing for school. So that was getting school supplies and getting some new clothes. And I went to the mall to get these new clothes. And I went to a store that was called Merry-Go-Round. Now, I don't know if this store still exists. I, I, I feel like it might, or it may have been absorbed by some other larger chains. Uh, but anyway, the the idea was very much like um, stores that I have seen around, like Pacific Sunwear, I think would be a good example, maybe even Urban Outfitters to a lesser degree. But at uh, in Michigan, at least, this, this place was very specific because it was where, as a younger person, you would go to get what would be considered, quote-unquote, cool clothes. And I did not usually wear cool clothes. I wanted to. I wanted to try to. But I usually sort of picked in things out of discount stores with my parents uh, and sort of put things together in a haphazard way. This is America WK. Don't go away. This is America WK, hosted by Andrew WK on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. And you think, well, we're not doing anything wrong. I know you're not. But anything that can be perceived, anything that can be manipulated by the media to look like hate, they're going to grab it and they're going to run with it. But, you know, and I don't know if this is the right answer, but a day of service, a day of service cannot possibly be spun to look like a hateful, evil thing, right? So we got to do something where it's just beyond reproach. Mike Slater. Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. This is America WK with Andrew WK, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to America WK. This is Andrew WK, and I've been uh, describing, uh, perhaps in a bit too much detail, the surrounding intensity of this uh, particular random memory that has stayed with me over all these years. And it wasn't very interesting, and yet I've been talking about it uh, longer than I had anticipated. So I guess this was more interesting than I had thought, to me at least. I don't know if it is to you, but I'll try to make this quick. Anyway, I was going to get <laughs> clothing for the new, new school year around age 11, and I went to the mall. And for the first time, I think I was, I was given a little bit more money, or, or I chose to take the limited amount of money that I had to spend on all my 
clothing for the new school year and decided to go to this sort of fancier store. Most of the time, my parents and I, we would like to go to discount stores like Marshall's or TJ Maxx, stores where there was that excitement about finding this shirt that nobody else wanted, maybe some type of very loud uh, patterned fabric uh, that was on this clearance, clearance, clearance rack, marked down from maybe $100 all the way down to, you know, six bucks. That was exciting. And I loved that I could use this money I had and get, you know, 10 shirts, 10 pairs of pants, maybe some shorts and t-shirts too, maybe even a pair of shoes because it was all discounted. Uh, And the hunting through all these piles of rejected clothes, I think that all appealed to me as well. And I liked the idea that maybe someone missed something. Maybe I was going to find the most one-of-a-kind, unusual shirt. I mean, I liked that kind of crazy, uh, more zany clothing at that age. Um, Still do, to a large degree. But for the first time ever, I was deciding to buy sort of undiscounted, brand-new, off-the-rack, fresh clothing. Clothing where no one had altered the price tag at all. It was just manufacturer's suggested retail price. I never bought anything like that. It was always somehow cut down. Um, And not only was this store selling that full-price clothing, this store was staffed by stylists, by salespeople who actually asked you what you wanted to wear. They tried to help you. Uh, put together an outfit. And again, this store, Merry-Go-Round, was geared towards younger people and geared towards helping them uh, assemble a stylish outfit. I never did that. I didn't even really know things like this existed before. I just thought you kind of went into a store and they turned you loose and you did whatever you wanted. Uh, It wasn't even very easy or even possible to get assistance like that from salespeople at the stores. I was usually... Uh, custom going to. But I liked that. I liked, again, just having three hours to roam through this mountain of sort of discarded random clothing, hunting for that one strangely patterned button-down shirt. So anyway, I, I thought I would do the opposite and and try this this place that some of the other kids went. And I walked in, and I mean, I was quite nervous, actually. It was mainly a little older uh, kids in there, probably high school age. I recognized some of the clothing styles that were portrayed on the mannequins and on the racks from television and maybe some magazines. I could tell that these were cutting edge styles and trends, not what we would call very high fashion, but uh, culturally relevant streetwear, if there uh, was such a term at this point. Again, I was probably about 11 or 12 years old. And a gentleman, and this is, again, just trying to frame up this particular memory that I don't know why I remember or why it's important, but this is how life works. This is, this is a memory that would flash before my eyes on my deathbed in all its pathetic and pitiful glory. A salesperson, a gentleman that was on a ladder, I remember very clearly, elevated above the store and above me, almost on a pedestal of sorts. He was uh, fixing some type of hat onto a mannequin on an upper shelf in this very fashionable store. 
And he turned around, and I believe I was alone in the store. I believe my parents had dropped me off at the mall to do my clothes shopping on my own. And it was sort of my choice to go to this higher-priced, fancier store. I don't even think my parents would have wanted me going in there, probably, because they would have said it was a rip-off. Why would you pay four times the price of a discounted shirt when you can just get the discounted shirt a few years later? And this gentleman on this ladder, I think he was silhouetted by this gleaming uh, display light, probably had a, a, a gobo filter on it or something. I mean, this store sort of had a nightclub atmosphere. I was very intimidated. He turned around and said, hey, bro, you looking for a fly hookup? And I froze couldn't break eye contact with him. My eyes started to water. I managed to sort of gasp and said, no, thank you, and then turned around and fled. And as I was fleeing, I think he jumped down off the ladder and tried to uh, offer more assistance. I think I kind of felt like he was even chasing me. Uh, I was completely overwhelmed, completely distraught. I didn't know what a fly hookup was. I don't even know that I really knew what bro was at that point. He was simply trying to offer me an outfit. I think I had to ask around to find out what a fly hookup was, which would have been uh, described as a, you know, a stylish outfit. A hookup was an outfit. I didn't even know that someone could assemble an outfit uh, in sort of a pre-thought-out way like that, uh, an organized, styled way. And this is a memory. This is, this is how life works. This is America WK, and I'm Andrew WK. I'll be right back. A party for being alive. This is America WK with Andrew WK on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. In addition to me taking care of the dog, I live with two women who have very little consistency. If I go to walk the dog and I see where the dog's leash is, it could be anywhere. It could be anywhere in the house, out of the house. And you know what I do when I walk the dog and I'm done? What's that? You put I put the leash on the table by the front door. Front door. Okay. You know where they put the leash when they're done walking the dog? No, uh, where's that? Everywhere else. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. This is a no-holds-barred celebration of being alive. America WK, with your friend and mine, Andrew WK, on the Blaze Radio Network. We are back on America WK. I am Andrew WK, and I just spent the last, oh gosh, almost 20 minutes describing a very insignificant, relatively boring memory of uh, clothes shopping for school when I was about 11 years old and being freaked out by a salesperson who was only trying to put together a fly hookup for me, like a cool outfit. But my point in all this was to illustrate how many memories are in there, how many life experiences of very little importance are retained. And some of them we will remember forever. I think about that all the time. I don't know why. Well, I can say, well, there was 
you know, high emotions. I was scared. You know, I'd never been at a store like that. Sure, there were significant aspects to that experience of clothes shopping as a young person by myself and running out of the store um, out of, in sheer terror over nothing. But when I see these images in my mind, when I picture that memory, it, I don't necessarily feel the, the, the terror. It's not like a traumatic experience. It's just one of these moments. And I'll bet, and perhaps you already do this, I'll bet I could just sit, we could just sit down in a quiet way, not necessarily meditative, but just in a, uh, a manner that allows us to think back and we will discover all uh, types of memories, of whole swaths of experience, whole versions of ourselves and life that are still there and, and, and very vividly still there with smells and textures and, and colors and tones, the way a certain room sounded, the way a, a, a place smelled, but not just as a smell, but even as a taste, as the way it felt to be at that time. It's all there. And it can be very painful. This can be frightening. Uh, many of us go to great lengths to block out huge parts of our life. But believe me, I was just thinking about this yesterday. There's all kinds of times I remember and think back on, and I'm just mortified. And it's not that I'm embarrassed or humiliated or, oh, I was such an idiot. I can't really describe why I feel bad. Sometimes it's just a strange, bad feeling. But I don't think that means we shouldn't retain, pardon me, that we shouldn't retain these, these memories. Ideally, I think we should be strong enough to face all of them and to almost get a kick out of being able to challenge ourselves to go back. If you're someone who has suffered truly traumatic experiences, then tread cautiously. Go lightly. But even for that person, I feel it's pretty well understood that as always, the way out of those nightmarish experiences is to go back into them and conquer them to some degree. To face them now as the person you are and not the person you were back then. And perhaps never to fully make peace with them, but to no longer live in fear of your own mind. To no longer live in fear of your own experiences. That can be asking a lot of anyone. And the amount of sympathy that I have for people who have every reason to not want to think about whole many years of their life, it's completely understandable. Uh, I, I feel for you tremendously, but it's still your life. And what better way to reclaim those moments of your life from the pain, the suffering that was either inflicted or experienced one way or another than by facing it and making it yours again, not theirs or not 
in possession of the pain, to liberate it. Hopefully, you have a lot of very pleasant memories to reflect on, or even just sort of trivial, interesting memories, or maybe even boring memories, like the one that I just described. It's still all your life, and if we're going to actually have a sense of having lived, we have to be able to accumulate that and hold on to it. And again, I never would have thought that that memory would stay with me, just shopping for clothes as a young kid. And I, can, I know that there were so many other events right around that time that were much more powerful in the moment. You know, back then, I was much more upset about, I was much more worried about, I was much more, you know, proud of certain events. And I can't remember them at all. Maybe I could remember them if I saw a photo or someone reminded me of a certain part of it and it would unlock a whole area of experience that I've, you know, just sort of forgotten about. But it is very strange that... So much of what seemed so important as you're going through it, 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 you don't even know that it even happened. How much of that is happening right now? All right, so let's go into some of these questions. Now, the first one, I received uh, quite a bit of feedback regarding a relatively brief discussion we had in our uh, last episode, episode 14, regarding the mystery of... Well, there's many ways to put it. The mystery of the origins of existence, the mystery of creation, the mystery of first cause, what started it all. And when it started, what was there before? And what was there before that? And uh, many folks uh, that wrote in were very kind in telling me in a very excited way that they had the answer and that there's no need to question or wonder about these things because they, they knew and the answers are very simple. And I'm summing it up here. Um, so these actually weren't so much listener questions. This was more uh, listener advice. They were desperately, at times, trying to urge me to put my mind at ease, that I did not need to know the answer to that. And I understand that. I actually really appreciated the kindness. But it's, it's not so much distressing to me because I find the mystery of what happened before anything happened to be quite valuable. And rather than wanting some answer just to have an answer so I don't have to think about it anymore, personally, I find that thinking about it and exploring it, even if there is no way to get to an answer, keeps me engaged in a type of thought that I don't know I would get otherwise. I don't think having the answers to everything is necessarily the point. I don't think putting our mind at ease with some of these very fundamental questions is necessarily the, the point. I think once you shut down the questioning, you've taken out an entire spirit, an entire way of feeling that for some may be distressing, and if you want to have an answer just to put an end to the questioning, that's your choice. But it seems as though, and we've talked about this before, that it is in the questioning, it is in the pondering, it is in the not knowing 
that we somehow get to a type of knowing, a type of understanding that may be deeper and more fundamental or more fulfilling than what we commonly think of as an answer. It's a bit of a puzzle in itself right there. We don't need to know all the answers to have a sense of security. We can have security in our questioning. We can have security in our pursuits of answers. And so I do appreciate the very comforting, consoling kindness that was shown to me as I discussed this idea of not knowing how things started. But I think even a lot of the answers that we, we find, they're actually encouraging us to keep looking, even as though they appear to be answering. It's America WK. I'll be right back. This is America WK, featuring Andrew WK, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. Jared is going, this is it. He is done now. Subway severed the relationship. It's over. You should be cheering this on because if anyone could be a likely replacement for Jared, the subway guy, it's Jeffy here. I mean, you could be there next crap. Why didn't you talk to me about that before we started this conversation? I thought it was obvious. Jared Fogle is an evil man. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Radio show restoring your faith in humanity through the power of positive partying. This is America WK with Andrew WK. Welcome back to America WK. I'm Andrew WK. We are going over some listener questions or listener feedback, listener comments. And what we just were discussing was uh, in relation to the idea of the origins of existence, of creation, uh, that some find it very distressing to not have a hard answer there or a, a fixed firm answer and some uh would uh, were telling me that I don't need to wonder about it or question it or uh think about it because they have the answer uh, and the, the different folks gave me a variety of answers including that uh it just started and that's it well when it started what happened before that and you say, well, you don't think about that. Well, I don't think that these answers are meant to stop us from thinking. And that is not always the case. But when it comes to very big questions, like how did things begin? If an answer encourages to stop thinking, I don't know that that's really an answer at all. I think an answer that somehow still keeps us engaged in very deep and rapturous thought about the idea itself seems somehow to be more telling, more revealing, uh, and certainly more valuable to the part of the human spirit and the human mind which is able to think. That answers that give us more to think about seem more worthy of our human abilities. Because why even have a mind at all then? Why even be able to wonder about the world around us 
at all. It is not meant to all be over and done with and put to bed. It is meant to be continuously dealt with, explored, and enjoyed. Because these these questions don't have to be stressful. Wondering how things began does not have to be upsetting. It's very intense. Because it does seem that no matter what answer we have, there's always, well, what happened before that? There's something going on there. And it doesn't need to be set aside or put out of mind or somehow completed with an answer that just stops the whole process. It may, in fact, be that life is able to exist from that process occurring, from the process of not knowing. Maybe existence emerges from that space of it not being answered. Maybe if it was answered, things wouldn't even exist at all. I don't know quite how to explain that, but it's just, uh, I have a hunch. Somehow, our very existence depends upon these types of questions. We got some other great uh, listener feedback in that same episode, episode 14, we talked a lot about the inner voice tapping in to this part of yourself that is the truth, that is actually entirely connected with that truth that we're trying to get at through these questions. And turning to that inner voice for guidance, and in fact, becoming so connected and so familiar and developing such a, a, a close relationship with that inner voice inside yourself that you become it. And someone wrote in very simply and said, well, dear Andrew, how do I know which voice is which? I have a lot of voices. They're telling me different things. How do I know which one is the true voice? Well, that's a great question. And I don't know that it's always so clear. And that's why, again, we have to put some effort into this. We have to, I'd say, follow our heart. And this is different than following the mind, as we've talked about in past episodes. When we think about questions, when we think about situations and try to approach them with our mind, it there does seem to be this feeling of using our head. It seems like those thoughts emerge from the skull, like... Uh, if you close your eyes and concentrate on trying to find out what to do in a certain situation and you think about it, you sort of have this feeling of your head taking over. And the mind is very powerful and a fantastic thing in many ways, but it has its limitations or it has its, its uh, specific skill set. It has its strengths. And its strengths are that it's very analytical, uh, but its weakness comes from It's uh, obsession with division, with comparing things, with contrasting things, with breaking things apart rather than unifying them. And it can become quite stressful. And if you've ever sort of thought yourself into a hole, I mean, I've never, never agreed that you could overthink things. But there is a way to kind of exhaust oneself by that type of concentrated effort that only happens in the mind where you don't really get an answer at all. You just get a bunch of possibilities, a bunch of options, each one sort of wrestling back and forth with the other, trying to make its case. And none of them really seems 
to be the right one. That's when you turn to your heart. That's when you turn to this place of thought that doesn't seem to come from your head, your skull, your mind. It's from your heart. It's from your, feels like it's coming from your chest. It, it seems like it's below you. It's low, lower down your body. I mean, if I think I'm just going to follow my heart here, it doesn't feel like that sensation is coming from my head. It does feel like it's coming from the center of my body. Kind of even apart from my actual heart muscle and kind of in, you know, the upper stomach, like the dead center maybe of my uh, abdomen. And when I think about situations and how to deal with them from the heart, there's usually very little division. There's usually very few options. There's usually only one choice that presents itself as being the choice. And when we're talking about trying to tune into this inner voice, I think the best way I can describe it is imagine that you're asking advice from the smartest, wisest, best person that could ever exist, the best human being that you can ever imagine existing, and try to be that person in that moment, in this situation. Sometimes there's great satisfaction in the clarity that comes from thinking in that way, imagining someone of that high level of being. But also it can be quite, quite challenging because to live on that level usually causes us to uh, have to examine many of our own shortcomings. And the answer that we may get from this very high mode of thought may conflict with all kinds of other choices that we've perpetually made regarding day-to-day life. That can be a very hard thing to face. It takes a lot of responsibility, a lot of resolve to follow through on doing what you know is truly right. But eventually the idea is if you keep imagining what the best person, if there really was just the best person, if there could be the best kind of person, what would they do? The answer is usually very clear. And you could have a conversation with that person. And that person is you. Inside of you. Just do you have the strength to be it? Do we have the strength to be that best person that we can easily imagine? That's the voice to tap into. That's the inner voice. This is America WK. I'll be right back. This is America WK with Andrew WK. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand. I don't know about the theology and the belief of Mormons. I will say without hesitation that it must be the theology, philosophy, holy scriptures, and beliefs of Mormons that make Mormons among the most kind, peaceful, law-abiding Americans. Just take a look at their behavior, and that is the only basis on which I think it's fair to judge people. Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.
show restoring your faith in humanity through the power of positive partying. This is America WK with Andrew WK. Welcome back to America WK. We've been going over sort of a combined assortment of listener questions and listener feedback. And the one we just uh, discussed was in terms of this inner voice of truth that we think everyone has inside of them. If we could just tap into it. We're trying to talk about how to listen to it. How do you know that it's the right voice? What if there's a lot of different voices? It's the voice that you would imagine would belong to like the best person in the world. If you tried to picture like what a superhero would do, uh, or what Santa Claus would say, of course, what would Jesus do? What would God say? Any kind of idealized personality, idealized being, someone who has it all figured out. It's remarkable because even in our own personal confusion and our own struggles with weakness, it does seem that we can picture what this type of being would be like and what this type of superhuman perfected being would do. It seems like we have the ability to picture that, to imagine it very specifically in a very detailed way, not just like, oh, well, they would just do the right thing. I don't know what it would be. They would just be something right. If we just quiet our mind a little bit and have a conversation with that voice inside of us, we can actually specifically get the instruction. I'll give an example of something that happened to me just the other day while driving. It's another driving story, another traveling story. In case you don't know, this seems to be an area in which I personally have dealt with a lot of struggle, a lot of conflict, a lot of chances to apply in a very low-pressure, kind of low-stakes way, these ideas that we talk about. I don't know why. There, there's clearly something sort of mysterious, something mystical about travel. There's something, we've talked about this before, about driving, uh, about the interaction that occurs between people when they are separated by vehicles. It is very, very remarkable to think about this. Uh, and I don't want to keep repeating myself, yet it keeps coming up. So I'm going to follow that, that impulse. I was driving down a very quiet residential street. However, this residential street uh, emptied onto a very main road. And so, as you can imagine, many people used this quiet residential street to access that main road, sometimes as a shortcut, uh, sometimes just because it was the most convenient way for wherever they lived. But it, re it resulted in a lot of people speeding down this road. Now, this is a road in uh, a neighborhood that I've been in many times. And I am someone who is, because of these exact sorts of stories we've been talking about, these exact sorts of efforts to improve, I'm someone who's trying to always drive better because it's this extremely satisfying, immediate place that I can apply these big ideas and test them out on a very small scale, but very instantaneous scale. Do I have the patience to not go into road rage? Am I strong enough to actually remain a civilized, kind-hearted human being doing this ridiculous thing called driving? You know, this amazing thing called driving, this very strange thing called putting my body in this big metal box and transporting my mind around this area. You know, it's, it's a very dehumanizing thing, yet it's, it's also one of the great things that we've developed as humans. I mean, it's really had a positive impact and also very negative impacts. 
But for whatever reason, I think we can all, whether as a passenger or as a driver, be able to see how palpable many of these uh, conflicts, many of these challenges that we face as people, they arrive in perfect little instances in these kinds of moments of driving. I don't know why, but I really love to use this because it's so easy, again, to talk about this with you right now on the radio show. Then I can go and get in a car and completely do all the opposite of what I'm describing now just while driving. At the same time, again, it's, a, it's right in your face. You are engaged in it. You can really test yourself. Like it's a perfect little test, a little practice. And then maybe if you can actually be a good driver and a, be a good person while driving, maybe then we can take it outside of the car and start applying it to these other areas. It's like, a, you know, it's sort of like a video game version. I mean, the stakes are much higher than a video game. But there's something about driving and traveling that is just the perfect place to practice. It's like scrimmage. It's like scrimmage for these other more challenging areas of life. Anyway, so I was driving down this small residential street. Now, I, again, I've been trying to always drive the speed limit or at least, especially when on the highway, go with the flow of traffic. The speed limit in this neighborhood is 25 miles per hour. And not only that, because it was a street, or it is a street that people speed down to get to this main road, they actually went to the additional trouble, the residents of this, uh, this, this neighborhood uh, along this street, to put up their own signs uh, that looked kind of like, um, you know, little uh, like lawn signs that you might have for an election that just said, please remember to drive carefully. Uh, the other one said, imagine that your kids live here. Please drive 25. They were pleading with people to drive nicely. So that really made it even easier. That really sort of reminded you, okay, I'm just going to drive nice, you know, even if I'm running late. So I was driving 25 miles an hour and observing these signs and was approaching the uh, intersection. And there was a small street I wanted to turn on. Well, as I was driving, I noticed this car behind me, pulling up right behind me, really riding me very close, right, riding my tail. And they even started flashing their lights. Now, this was sort of late, late afternoon, early evening, so I couldn't be sure. But I thought, why would this person be flashing their lights? And uh, I checked my speed limit to make sure I wasn't going way too slow, but I was going the speed limit at 25. And I, I, I thought this person must see these signs, these additional signs that the neighbors, the residents have posted pleading with people to drive nicely. Doesn't that make an impact? And then as I'm getting to turn, getting ready to turn on this other street, this person, uh, I'm turning left. They try to pass me on the left side on a residential street. I almost had a collision because they wanted to, they were so enraged and laying on their horn that I wasn't going faster, that they almost, uh, they, of course, I stopped, and they did pass me. And as they passed me, uh, I looked out at the window to see who this was uh, that was f freaking out about me not speeding fast enough down the road. And it was uh, looked like, like a 75-year-old <laughs> like grandmother. I cannot describe the feeling that went through me at that moment. She waved her fist at me, the anger in her eyes was palpable. I felt sort of sick to my stomach. I didn't really feel angry. I felt sad. 
a kind of all-pervading sadness descended upon the entire moment. And someone I was riding with said, hey, you, you, you had every right to give that lady the finger. Um, you know, and part of me thought about doing something like that or honking back or even trying to follow her to make my point. And I just instead turned down the road I had intended to turn down all along. And I asked that inner voice what to do. And at this point, fortunately, especially in these driving situations, I've been able to shorten the gap so I don't have to have a big conversation or a big searching moment to listen to that inner voice or find what it's saying. It was right there, and it told me before I even had to ask. Uh, this is America WK. We're going to keep going. I'll be right back. You're listening to America WK with Andrew WK on the Blaze Radio Network. The Jeff Fisher Show. Now, the University of Missouri broke down the types of drunks into four distinct categories. Uh, and this, of course, was published in the Addiction Research and Theory. And, pff, I mean, who doesn't go over that? Scientists surveyed 187 pairs of undergraduate drinking buddies. Now, the findings, you were either a Hemingway, Mary Poppins, Nutty Professor, or Mr. Hyde Drunk. The Jeff Fisher Show. Saturday morning, 6 to 8 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Now, the king of partying himself, your friend and mine, Andrew WK. Welcome back to America WK. This is Andrew WK, and I've been telling you about yet another one of my driving ordeals. My tests of human character while driving a car. And it involved an older, grandmotherly-type lady completely freaking out on me. Because I was driving the speed limit. It's almost like <laughs> the, the tables are turned. It's an inversion, an inversion of the common reality. You'd usually think that a long haired, younger rocker guy driving around, be, you know, blasting his tunes and driving all crazy and speeding, whiplashing, honking, cutting around people, and cutting, cutting around the kindly old grandmother. Uh, driving the speed limit on a nice summer afternoon, minding her own business. And then the kid drives up and he's like, yo, granny, get out of the way. Well, it was the exact opposite. And I was uh, really shocked. I did, uh, this woman was honking and flashing her lights at me and shook her fist at me. And in a way, of course, I was half amused by uh, how, I guess, non-stereotypical it was to see uh, a road rage driving uh, situation emerge from an older woman like that. So she, I guess she had some real spunk, some real, uh, you know, vigor. Talk about vitality. But I just felt bad. The whole thing just made me feel bad. It made me feel sad. I wasn't really mad at her. I just felt sh- shook up. I had, uh, I was, you know this feeling. It's a combination of all these different emotions. And I just felt bad. Uh, I didn't want to try to make some point to her, to chase after her. I didn't roll down my window and yell something after she went by. But I couldn't let go of it. I I couldn't get over it. It, it, Even the next day, the next day, usually you, you end the day and there's something about the cycle of 
sunset and sunrise and having slept that resets uh, your day and you're able to let go, things like that fall away. This one really stayed with me. And I had to turn to that inner voice and it told me very plainly that everything's fine. You know, who knows what that older woman was going through. Maybe she was on the way to the hospital and her dying husband was on his deathbed asking where his wife was or some other life or death emergency. Maybe she was struggling with other problems that I could only imagine. And no matter what, have compassion for a fellow human being in a moment of great weakness. No one would want to behave the way she was behaving, especially an older woman like that who has clearly lived longer than I have. No one, she didn't get up that morning and say, I'm going to just have the biggest, ex- most explosive case of road rage and I'm driving down that road later today. I can't wait. For some reason, she found herself in a moment of weakness and brought out the worst in her. And when you see someone at their worst, it, it, it hurts. It hurts you. Not hurts like an offense, like I was offended. It, I hurt for her. I felt what it felt like to be her. She was me at that moment. I have been like that at times. I've been worse than that many times, including recently. And that's the feeling. It was, it was not sadness. It wasn't pain. It was, I, the inner voice told me that I was her. And that was an automatic kind of forgiveness and understanding that allowed the entire thing to not just melt away or be forgotten about, but actually to be meaningful. And in this moment where I, in one way, felt very upset and angry at that old woman for being so rude to me and driving so crazy and actually really risking her life and mine, uh, I just sort of felt like, uh, I don't know what other word to describe, a sort of love. And that's what the inner voice gave to me. It put me immediately in touch with that part of myself, which I think for humans is our best. That love that transcends reason, where I did have reason to be not loving or not feel loving towards that woman. And yet, when I imagined asking the most intelligent, best person in the world how they would have handled that situation... They'd say, just, just try to love that old woman that you don't even know that was screaming at you and honking and freaking out. Just try to feel love for her. And you know what? You didn't even have to try. I didn't even have to try. It was already there. And it was shocking. I was confused by how easily it came out of me. Uh, so let's try once again to turn to that part of ourselves as much as we can, to practice returning to it, to practice jumping into that state of mind like a reflex so that we don't even have to consider which way to think. And when we find ourselves not thinking that way, let us develop 
the awareness to catch ourselves and at least consider another way of thought, a truer way of thought, a more evolved, higher way of thought. Let us not give in to the temptation of our lowest feelings. We are better than that. We are worth more than that. We were given a chance to be a good person. And all we have to do is decide to try. This is America WK. Thank you to everyone who has written in. If you've ever written in to me in any capacity, it means more than you'll ever know. I'm Andrew WK. Stay strong. A party for being alive. This is America WK with Andrew WK. On the Blaze Radio Network.